let us hear our epistle reading from the book of Acts, chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let us hear God's word. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in their own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocians, Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Pamphila, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And all my men servants and all my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let us ask God to bless the hearing and understanding of his word. O oh God and our Father, we thank you for sending your spirit to give us life and to empower us for the call you have given us to carry your words of life to the ends of the earth. Please allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and nearest kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. People of God, have you ever wondered why the Christian faith is so suppressed in the public realm? Right now, it seems, as virtually any and other, any other view whatsoever is brought into the marketplace, considered to be elevated above Christianity. All other ideas, all other religions seem to be given free reign in the media, academia, the government, 
and any other public arena or media platform that you can come across. But if it's Christianity, it needs to be suppressed. There was certainly a time in our nation's history when Christianity was the norm of public life. Twelve of the original 13 colonies were established by covenants based on the Bible and the Christian church. But through the passing centuries, particularly in the 1800s, strategic efforts have been made in higher education and government halls to privatize Christian beliefs. I know what you're thinking. Those scoundrels. It must be some of those folks from Psalm 2 who are plotting against God and His anointed Son. I would point out that nearly, for nearly a hundred years, all colleges in the U.S. were founded on the Bible and were explicitly Christian. The founding of this nation and all the colonies in the cities, no one could hold office unless they were a professing Christian in good standing with their church, not under church discipline, that is to say that they weren't excommunicated for having unrepentant sin, you couldn't hold a public office. So if colleges and governments were founded by Christians and run by Christians, what happened? The problem does not lie with the roaring lion who's been defeated and has no teeth. But rather, the problem is within the church. The church began reaching back into history to borrow from the heretic Pelagius, who attempted to bring Platonistic thinking into Christianity by making the focus of the Christian life to be tied to the idea that mankind or each person is basically neutral or good, and that changes in the world and within a person came from exertion of their own will. Pelagius emphasized that man, as an individual, and all his individual efforts and inner efforts were how we bring change in our life. Yes, we call upon Christ, but it's about our own will, our own ability to change ourselves from the inside. By embracing this, the church has led itself into false teachings that people choose God. It is an idea that the way to salvation from our sins and all that ails mankind is dependent on men and is corrected within ourselves. This idolatry teaches that I, the individual, or you, this person, has all the authority. This is a problem. If I say that, I think we can look out and see some of the fruit of this. I get to self-define. I define what is truth. Everything is about me and not about God Almighty who brings truth and justice and salvation to the world. Please listen carefully. Christianity, that is Christ, is not a choice, but rather a necessity. We cannot save ourselves. The answers do not lie within you or within me. 
Our only help is in the triune God. Psalm 121, beginning in verse 1, says this, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. We are not basically good. Our sinful natures are actually totally depraved. Here's Psalm 14. Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Do you hear that? We're all corrupt. And when we all get together, we're even more corrupt. We must understand that Christ took our place of punishment. Punishment for what? For your sin and my sin. But when he died, he was raised again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father where all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and all the nations have been given to him as an inheritance. So if Christ is the remedy for salvation and he holds the answers to all that people need, what is his plan? Jesus commissioned his church to disciple the nations. We see this in Matthew 28, in Matthew 16, in Mark 16. Jesus, the ascended king, does not leave us unable to complete the task of discipling the nations. God's plan from the beginning was to provide the Holy Spirit to his church to transform the world in a very public way. Jesus told us in John 16, beginning in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Jesus does not abandon us to the world as a God who is afar off, but he sent the Spirit to draw near to his people, to transform our hearts from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36. Jesus gave the disciples on the day of his ascension this is his last moment of face-to-face -face instruction. And we find this in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where Jesus is looking at right before he ascends, he says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be what? Witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In our passage today in Acts 2, we find that the disciples are in Jerusalem in one accord and in one place. Why are they there? Jesus had called his disciples to be in Jerusalem. Jesus called his church to assemble together in unity and also in one place. It's interesting because we're told there's 120 gathered there in Acts chapter 1, and we see this. Did you, I don't know if you know this, but the number of 120 
is how many it takes in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day to establish a new synagogue. So that number is significant because it tells us that God, in the midst of all that he's doing to recreate the world, to recreate his people, he establishes a new point of teaching. And what happens? We see that Jesus here is following and continuing in the Old Testament teaching that God calls his people to assemble as a congregation before him. God assigns servants of his house who are priests, Levites, and elders. And we see all through the scriptures that they call us to worship before him. This should instruct us that when your elders, where you go to church if you're visiting or if you're of this church, when your elders call you to worship, you should come. Attending church is not an individual choice. When the elders call worship, the people come together in one place and in unity of spirit. Now, again, considering all this, we need to stop and think, what is Pentecost? In our Acts chapter 2 passage, we see that the Spirit comes like a mighty rushing wind, like flames of fire dividing over each of the gathered disciples. Why did this happen on this particular day? The day of Pentecost happened on the 15th day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. The triune God had instituted the Feast of Pentecost at Sinai. We see this in Leviticus 23. It was established to be held 50 days after Passover. The feast was, excuse me, the feast was of the beginning of the harvest. So they get to harvest time, they have Passover, and they bring their first fruits to what is the Feast of Pentecost. Now you say, I don't remember seeing the word Pentecost there. That's because in the Old Testament it's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Basically they took these, these branches and they cut them down and they all bring their first fruits in and there's a huge party. There's this giant feast. All the people gather together. And if you can't carry all your stuff with you, the scriptures tell us that you can bring money so that once you got to Jerusalem, and you were around the temple or, or, or in the early stages around the tabernacle, and you could build, you could bring the money in, and you could buy all the stuff you need for the party, for the feast. Not just because you're thanking God for his providence of the harvest, but you do all this, and you surround the temple, and you build these, these treetop tree houses, so to speak, to remind you that you are ascending into God's presence kind of among the treetops in the sky and you're thinking about God's heaven where he lives and he comes down and dwells with them because remember think about this if you think about being at the treetops you ever been so far up in the mountains that you're driving through the clouds or become so foggy that the cloud comes down to us there when God establishes people at Israel the cloud the glory cloud of the presence of God was among them, and it dwelt at the tabernacle. And they moved when it moved. And he led them and established them. And this is what Pentecost is about. Now it's interesting, when God gives the instructions for the Feast of Tabernacles, or Pentecost, one of the things that he gives is there's an instruction about all of the different sacrifices that happened during the time of worship. And a very important part of this 
is that they are to sacrifice 70 bulls. And when they sacrifice these 70 bulls, it is representative of the table of nations in Genesis where there it lays out the 70 nations. All other nations of the world are descended from those original 70 nations. And so when they sacrifice those bulls, they are making intercession for the nations. And when we think about all of that, and we then consider that Jesus tells his disciples at his ascension to go to Jerusalem, to be there, and they're going to be there during the Feast of Tabernacles, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And what's going to happen? All the believing Jews, all the believing converted people are going to come to Jerusalem to worship and have a feast and be there celebrating, building these booths, ascending up at the treetops, waiting for the Spirit of God, the glory cloud to come. And what does God do? God brings the Spirit down to His people. And we see that long list of all these different people that are there from all over the kingdom. We see them listed. We see not only that, but when the Spirit comes and He has them speak, it's not other tongues as if some sort of spiritual language, but it is rather the actual languages of all those people groups. And what are those disciples saying? They are speaking of the great and wondrous works of God and of the great care that God had by sending His Son to redeem them. You know, every week when we declare and quote the, the historic Nicene Creed, we say that the Holy Ghost is the Lord and giver of life. Jesus, on the day of his resurrection, brought peace to his disciples and prepares them to be sent out to transform the world by proclaiming the good news that God has provided a way to deal with sin and guilt. We see in John 20, beginning verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. When God's people are sent out and proclaimed through the word through words and action, it is the Spirit who convicts the world of their sin, and people are made new. Hear God's word from Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, that's Jesus himself, not by works of righteousness, not by what we are doing from the inside, not by our own efforts, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. Whose mercy? God's mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. People of God, God sent his Son, Philippians chapter 2. We are dead in our sin, Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. God calls us, Ephesians 1, 
Romans 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we see here in Titus 3 that our works cannot save us from our sin and cannot deliver us from death. But the Spirit is the one who washes us by regeneration and renews us into what God has designed men and women to be. The Spirit gives life to the new humanity. New people justified from their sins by Jesus Christ alone. If you're still clinging to the idea that you choose God, or if you think that your personal experiences give you some kind of authority into your salvation, you need to recognize that you cannot go anywhere the Spirit isn't already. Where can we go from the Spirit? Psalm 139, beginning of verse 7, says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I, excuse me, if I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. We often see this passage as a reassurance to God's keeping us in all the trials of our lives. And this is true. But Psalm 139 makes it abundantly clear that God alone holds us, delivers us, keeps us. You and I must cling to Jesus Christ as our only hope and deliverer. The world cries, peace, peace. But outside of the triune God, there is no peace. There will be no healing of the nations through our own exertion of our own will or by our own efforts. In Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1, we see this. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. And on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, and each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The Spirit is the river of life. The people of God, the church, are the trees of life for the healing of the nations. Life and death are celebrated public events. We see that there are birth announcements, and death announcements. People turn out to see new babies. People attend wakes and funerals. Jesus told his disciples, including us, if we love him, keep my commandments. We are to assemble and worship him. We are to have the fruit of joyful obedience to all of his commandments, not just the ones that we're comfortable with, not just the ones that, that we feel like, well, I can do that. Walking in obedience to God is not a negotiation. If you're negotiating with God in any way about how to live, you, in fact, have made yourself equal to God. When God's people worship and obey, the world sees our good works and glorifies our Father in heaven. Matthew 5. 
If we do not worship and we do not obey the word of God, the world cannot see. The Christian life is not private. It is public, and there is clearly and simply a public nature to the healing of the nations. We heard God's plan in Acts 1 that the disciples would be witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. The end of the earth. That is all of it. All peoples. In Acts 2, when the Spirit came, it says this, and they're dwelling there in Jerusalem. I mentioned this already. Jews and devout men of every nation under heaven. And when the Spirit came, there was a sound. And the multitude, what multitude? From all the nations. They came together, and they were confused. Because everyone heard them speaking in their own language. And what did they do? They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How much is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And again, it makes this list of people. And finally, it says, We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. These people in Jerusalem on that day heard the wonderful works of of God pertaining to Jesus Christ. Where? In the city. In public. Because of this public act, they question what's going on. They don't understand it. Some, mockingly, even think that these Galileans are drunk. And Peter gets up and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. People of God... We are not to worry about how the unbelieving world will understand our obedience to God. If the world misinterprets the motives of our actions as we speak God's words of life to them, no problem. The Spirit is the one who will do the work of conviction and regeneration in their hearts. We are to speak God's word. Sometimes we try to, oh, i got to figure out some way to make it palatable. It is true and right that we need to know God's word. We need to be in prayer. And if we know we're meeting with certain people with certain kinds of backgrounds and experiences, let us study those things so that we can share the appropriate parts of God's word with them. But we don't win people over by being simply winsome and having the best arguments. Arguments don't convert people. The spirit of God does. So here... We see Peter get up and preach. And when he does, the Spirit does the work. And he regenerates the hearts. We know that we're, when <clears throat> they are confronted with God's word, that is the hearers hearing Peter preach, look at what it says in verse 37 of Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? He got up, Peter got up publicly, spoke God's word. He explained it a little. And the spirit cut their heart. And they cried out, what shall we do? In verse 38, we see Peter respond, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
that the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as what? As the Lord shall call. Who calls us to repentance? Who transforms our heart? It is God himself. We see that those who gladly received God's words of life, that on that day 3,000 were added to the church. You know, this number is significant when you recall that when God established Israel as his covenant people at Sinai, that they quickly fell into idol worship. And when God brought judgment to the worshipers of the golden calf on that day, how many perished? 3,000. When God reestablishes his people through the work of Jesus Christ, on the very first day, he resurrects 3,000 spiritually dead people to life by the work of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who chooses to worship any God, any philosophy, any way of life, except what God's word says about the triune God will lose their life. But those that call upon God in repentance and are baptized will be saved. We need to remember that Sunday is our day of worship. Your elders have called you to come to worship. We should order our week according to our Saturday nights, excuse me, including our Saturday nights, thinking about worship and fellowship with God's people in mind. And you know what? When we do that, when we take and think about that this day, we always think about, okay, Lord's Day, first day of the week, it's launching us off. That's great and wonderful. But you need to let God's work go on all week, and you need to consider your Saturday in preparation. If you're going to take a trip, if you're going to go to work, and, and listen, parents out there with a lot of kids, you know how this goes. Just to get up and start your day, and if you're going anywhere, what do you do? you got to make a plan. you got to think, okay, if i got to leave at this time, what time do we have to get up? What time do the kids have to go to bed? Right? i got to lay out the clothes. Do I have food for lunches? You have all this planning you do. Do the same thing as we come before the Lord. Consider and prepare yourself. Be ready. And you know what? When we do those kinds of things, this is very different than the public actions of the world. When we live our lives centered on Christ, when we order our lives according to worshiping Him every single day. People of God, your actions every day and your activities of marriage, families, work, serving your communities, and even your hobbies should be done in a way that is in obedience to God's commands. Children, look up this way. Being a Christian, children, part of that, living your life as a Christian, is obeying your parents. When you do obey your parents, you bring glory and honor publicly to God. Sometimes you say, well, I'm not at someone else's house. But you're publicly demonstrating to your brothers and sisters how to obey God. 
through obeying your parents. When you go anywhere, you go to your school, obey your parents, glorify God. And you're doing this in a public fashion. You are teaching them about God. Living the Christian life is a public Pentecostal proclamation to the world that Jesus Christ brings healing and new life to the world. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your providential provision for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Please help us to remember that our only hope is in you. Help us to obey you, to live and proclaim your words of life every day in all that you have given to us. We ask all these things for Jesus' sake, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.